Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Please be advised. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault against minors and graphic descriptions of violence. These details may be triggering for some listeners. In April 1971, Carol Spinks, a young black girl, became the first victim in a series of slayings in the Washington, D.C. area. In the period of 17 months, six black girls between the ages 10 and 18 were snatched from the streets of D.C., strangled, and then discarded near the side of a road. The homicides were believed to be the first serial killings in Washington, and they came to be known as the Freeway Phantom Murders. Fifty years later, these cases are still unsolved. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library. This is the haunting story of the Freeway Phantom Murders. On May 1, 1971, around 2 p.m., a call came into the homicide unit at police headquarters in D.C. Children who were playing in a grassy area along Interstate 295, located behind St. Elizabeth's Hospital in southeast D.C., had stumbled upon a dead body. The children flagged down a police officer who happened to be nearby. When the officer approached the body, they were horrified by the realization that the dead body was that of a young girl. Immediately, two detectives were sent to the scene. Detectives John Moriarty and Roy Lamb headed out to the scene to investigate. Meanwhile, another detective, named Romaine Jenkins, along with two other officers, were tasked with following up with the case by going to the victim's neighborhood and talking to relatives, neighbors, or anyone who might have known something about how this young girl ended up dead along Interstate 295. But before they could head out and start investigating the murder, they were stopped by the district commander. You see, the police department was battling war protesters during this time, and the district commander wanted the officers patrolling the streets, helping with prison control, and waiting on standby in case anything went wrong during the protests. This strike Detective Romaine Jenkins as odd because, as far as she knew, murder always took precedence, even over protests but she obeyed the instructions of her district commander and worked the protests while other detectives were sent out to handle the case. After investigating the scene, detectives learned that the victim was Carol Spinks. Carol was a shy 7th grader at Johnson Junior High School at the time of her murder. She was also an identical twin who loved to jump double dutch rope with her friends, play jacks with her sisters, and show off her hula hooping skills to anyone who was willing to ask. Detectives also learned that Carol had been abducted six days prior to the discovery of her body. Carol's older sister, Valerie, 
who was 24 at the time and lived across the hall from Carol and the rest of their family, gave Carol five bucks to go run some errands for her. She convinced Carol to go buy some TV dinners, bread, and soda, even though Carol knew their mother had told the younger children not to leave the apartment while she was gone. Carol's mother, Allentine, was visiting an aunt in Brentwood, Maryland. With Carol's older sister across the hall, and with the rules set in place, Allentine felt safe leaving her children there alone. Plus, she knew that her children were aware of the consequences that would come from disobeying their mother. A whip-in with a switch or a belt, or sometimes an extension cord. However, Carol Spinks decided to take the risk. She only needed to walk four blocks to the nearby 7-Eleven, and then head straight back to the apartment like nothing ever happened. But Carol didn't make it far before her mother spotted her on the way to the 7-Eleven. Carol was ordered to purchase the items for her sister, and then head home and await punishment. But the young girl never made it back home. Distraught by the sudden disappearance of her daughter, Allentine filed a missing persons report that night after she and some neighbors searched for Carol, but could find her to no avail. When authorities recovered Carol Spink's body, what they learned from it was disturbing and unfathomable. She had been strangled and sodomized. She suffered cuts to her face, neck, chest, and both hands, and her nose was bloodied. They also took note of some interesting finds, like green synthetic fibers that were found on Carol's clothing, as well as the fact that Carol's shoes were missing. Carol's body was found on a Saturday. When she went missing, she was wearing the same blue gym shorts, red sweater, and brown socks as when she had left home nearly a week prior. When the medical examiner examined Carol's body, they found citrus fruit in her stomach, leading detectives to surmise that maybe the killer fed Carol and kept her alive for a few days. They believed this may have been the case because Carol had been dead for two to three days when they found her. During the investigation, witnesses tell police some helpful information. For instance, the 7-Eleven clerk told police that he saw Carol leave with her purchased items, and a 14-year-old girl on the way to the same 7-Eleven with her mother and sister remembered seeing Carol pass by them while carrying a grocery bag. Though Detectives Moriarty and Lamb led the investigation, Detective Romaine Jenkins decided to familiarize herself with the case of Carol Spinks, in case they were off-duty or tied up in another case. As a black woman and a detective, Romaine Jenkins felt connected to the murder of this young black girl. She struggled to wrap her mind around the nature of the murder. She desperately wanted to know what use did a killer have with abducting a child, and who would want to savagely murder an innocent girl. I think it's important to remember that Carol's murder was in 1971. This was before families and police departments really took missing children cases seriously and before the conversation about the dangers of sexual predators targeting children became more prominent. During this time, many people truly didn't consider the idea of children being the targets of sexual violence. As detectives worked the case of Carol Spinks, another young black girl was being targeted in Washington, D.C. The body of a second girl was found 10 weeks after the murder of Carol Spinks. The second victim's body was discovered by a DC Department of Highways and Traffic employee along Interstate 295, the same interstate Carol Spinks' body was found. According to the employee, he found the body when he was having car trouble and pulled off the road. When he got out of his car, he saw the body and called DC police immediately. Apparently, this man's call was actually the second call that came into police headquarters about this dead body. 
Dispatchers who took the second call sent officers out to look at the scene. However, they radioed back a 10-8, which means that they found nothing wrong and were moving on. But according to Detective Jenkins, it was later discovered that these officers didn't actually do their jobs by getting out of the car and looking for the remains. Instead, the officers simply drove by. Despite this massive error by the DC Police Department, the body was eventually recovered a week later. On July 19, 1971, one of the callers returned to the site and saw that the body was still there and rotting from the intense heat. Angry by the inaction from the police, the man told his boss, who then drove by the body, saw it, and then made a call to his friend, who happened to be a DC police sergeant. When the sergeant asked the man if he ever called the police to notify them of the body, the man said, quote, yeah, but nobody came, end quote. When investigators finally came out to the scene, they realized that this second body was abandoned only 15 feet from where Carol Spink's body was found. The victim's name was Darlenia Johnson, and she was just 16 years old. She had been reported missing on July 9, 1971. She went missing after telling her mom, Helen, that she was going to work at the Oxen Run Recreation Center. Darlenia told her mother that she planned to stay the night at a sleepover the center was having for kids, but Darlenia never showed up. Darlenia's body was found 11 days later, with her face and body so badly decomposed that the medical examiner had to cut off her fingers to identify her. Keep in mind, back then there was no DNA testing, so authorities could only really turn to fingerprints when identifying bodies. Because her body had been left to decompose in the sweltering July heat due to the police department's negligence, Darlenia's cause of death couldn't be determined. It is possible that if police found her on the day the call came in, her cause of death could have been determined. With the discoveries of the bodies of Carol Spinks and Arlenia Johnson along Interstate 295, police still had no suspects in these two homicide cases. And although the cases were similar, police didn't consider the two cases connected, and they definitely didn't consider Carol and Arlenia as victims of a serial killer. Nine days after the discovery of Darlenia Johnson's body, a hitchhiker who was traveling along Route 50 in Cheverly happened upon a body. The victim was identified as 10-year-old Brenda Faye Crockett. She was a young black girl with adorable dimples and lots of friends. Brenda was one of those girls who loved smiling for a camera and attending church with her family. When detectives first arrive at the scene, they are shocked and horrified by what they find. Brenda was found sprawled alongside the road, wearing blue and white print shorts and a matching halter top. As detectives moved in closer and examined her body, they noticed that Brenda had been strangled and raped. And like Carol Spinks, Brenda had green synthetic fibers on her clothing. Prince George's County homicide detective, named Hilary Skukolowski, who was the first detective on the scene, recalled placing clear plastic bags on Brenda's tiny hands in attempts to preserve evidence before placing Brenda's four-foot-six-inch body into a plastic bag so she could be transported to the Prince George's Hospital morgue. As detectives looked into the days leading up to Brenda's murder, they learned that Brenda had been snatched off the street when she was walking barefoot with hair curlers still in while on her way to the Safeway near 4th and U Streets in northwest D.C. She was heading there to buy bread and pet food for her family's three dogs. Her mother had sent her out to run the errand around 8 p.m. as the neighbor's kids were selling in for a movie night on their street. At the time, 
Her mother, Retha, thought that Brenda took a friend with her to the store. When Brenda didn't return from what was considered a quick trip to the store, her mother went looking for her, while Brenda's younger sister, Bertha, who was just seven years old, stayed at the house with her mother's boyfriend. On that same night, at 9.20 p.m., the phone rang at the Crockett residence. It was Brenda on the other end. While sobbing, she told her sister, Bertha, that a white man snatched her up and took her somewhere in Virginia, but was going to send her home in a taxi. According to police records, Brenda called home again, 25 minutes after the first call. In this call, she talked with her mother's boyfriend who asked Brenda if she knew where she was in Virginia. The police record report states that Brenda said, quote, no, did my mother see me? End quote. To which the mother's boyfriend responded, quote, how could your mother see you if you're in Virginia? End quote. Then the boyfriend told Brenda to put this white man on the phone. But Brenda whispered into the phone, quote, well, I'll see you, end quote. Then the line went dead. Less than eight hours later, Brenda's body was found. Something interesting to note in this case is that despite Brenda being abducted while walking barefoot, when her body was found, her feet were clean, as if they were washed by someone. This discovery is just one of a few circumstances in the case that are eerie and bizarre. For instance, why did this man allow Brenda to make a phone call to her family? Well, Detective Romaine Jenkins had a theory about the call. Was it possible that the killer knew Brenda's mother and wanted to find out if she saw him with Brenda? Why would the killer let the girl call home not once but twice? Was it because the killer had to make sure that the mother didn't see Brenda or the killer? Brenda Crockett was the third black girl who was murdered within a few months. There was someone in DC abducting little black girls, raping them, killing them, and then discarding them on the side of the road. And yet, police were no closer to finding their killer. And while each case began to stall, another black girl was being tortured and killed. By fall 1971, another black girl disappeared from the DC area. On October 1st, 1971, a 12-year-old girl named Nenemoshia Yates went missing. Like the other victims before her, Nenemoshia was taken while she was walking to a store. Her stepmother had just given birth to a baby, and her father needed to be at the hospital with his wife and newborn. This meant that Nenemoshia was left to fend for herself for the night. So at 7 p.m., she set out to pick up some sugar, flour, and paper plates from the Safeway store, located about a block from her family's apartment in the 4900 block of Benning Road Southeast. On her way home from the store, Nenemoshia vanished. It was a 16-year-old boy who found her still warm body two hours later along Pennsylvania Avenue, just east of the District of Columbia. At the time of her murder, she was attending Kelly Miller Junior High School as a sixth grader, and like the other victims before her, she had been strangled and raped. At the time of the murder, Detective Romaine Jenkins was the night supervisor, and she dispatched two detectives to go investigate the scene. When they searched the scene, Detectives found green synthetic fibers on Nenemoshia's clothing, just as in the two of the other three cases. It wasn't until Nenemoshia Yates' murder that the media became invested in the cases. The media finally began pressing the police about whether the homicides were connected. They also began referring to the killer as the freeway phantom. Police were now seriously considering that these cases were linked and that maybe they had a serial killer roaming D.C., Six weeks later, 
the fifth victim of the freeway phantom was found. 18-year-old Brenda Woodard went missing on November 18, 1971, after she stopped at a restaurant called Ben's Chili Bowl with a classmate from Cardoza High School in Northwest. Before she vanished, Brenda was attending night classes to perform her typing and shorthand skills. Usually, her classmate gave her a ride home, but his car was in the shop, so the two of them decided to take a bus. Brenda got off at 8th and 8th Streets Northeast and transferred onto another bus, while her classmate continued on. While out on patrol around 5 a.m. the next morning, a Chevrolet police officer named David Norman noticed Brenda's dead body on Hospital Drive, which is just south of Route 202, near Prince George's Hospital. Officer Norman remembered shining his flashlight into Brenda's eyes and checking to see if she would blink, but she never did. Brenda's body was found with her burgundy-crushed velvet coat draped over her. The black turtleneck she was wearing was now turned inside out, and some buttons were missing from her coat and skirt. Further investigations determined that she had been raped, strangled, and stabbed four times. She also had defensive wounds on her hands that made it clear she fought for her life against her killer. When detectives search the pockets of Brenda's clothing, they find something puzzling, a note. The note was stuffed in her pocket and was written in pencil. The note read, quote, this is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can." End quote. And it was signed, Freeway Phantom. Although the note was signed, Freeway Phantom, the detectives were certain that the person who wrote the note was Brenda Woodard. They believed that the killer dictated to her because the FBI was able to match the writing to other writings by Brenda. Detective Romaine Jenkins believed that because the writing was in Brenda's quote-unquote normal handwriting and the note contained punctuation, Brenda must have known her killer. Detective Jenkins suggested, quote, there were no signs that she was nervous when she wrote the note. You don't think calmly like that if someone has kidnapped and assaulted you, end quote. However, I personally struggle with this theory that Brenda knew her killer. Just because she knew her killer doesn't mean that she wasn't nervous or scared. After all, wouldn't most people be scared and nervous if someone they knew acted out of character and suddenly kidnapped and assaulted them? I think familiarity doesn't necessarily take away that component of fear. Not to mention, she may have included punctuation in the note because the killer ordered her to. Or, it's possible that as someone who was taking shorthand and typing classes, Brenda was used to naturally adding punctuation in whenever she wrote. Personally, as someone who has a degree in writing, I think I would still include punctuation in a note, even if I was scared or if my life was threatened just because it's that ingrained in me and it's become muscle memory at this point. 10 months passed, which made Detective Jenkins as well as other police believe that the freeway phantom had left the DC area or had been locked up for other crimes. But on September 6th, 1972, those theories all changed when the body of Diane Williams, a 17 year old turned up. On a September day in 1972, a trucker who had pulled off to the side of the road found the body of Diane Williams. Diane had spent the evening with her boyfriend, who walked her to the bus stop for her trip home to Haley Terrace in Southeast DC. The young girl was strangled and left abandoned along I-295, about 200 yards south of the DC line. When police searched the scene, they noticed her name was written in all uppercase letters on her white sneakers and $1.26 was left in the hip pocket of her jeans. 
it appeared that Diane Williams was now the sixth victim of the freeway phantom. After Diane Williams, it seemed that the murders just stopped for good this time. Detective Romaine Jenkins became a supervisor in the patrol division, but she never stopped thinking about the freeway murders. In 1974, the FBI created a task force to investigate the homicides. And at one point, the task force enlisted the help of 100 detectives and federal agents from DC Prince George's County and the Maryland State Police. According to the Washington Post, the task force developed hundreds of suspects, including a four-star general, a St. Elizabeth Hospital psychiatrist, and a wealthy Prince George's developer who owned property in Southeast DC. At one point, the task force questioned a man who owned a teen club where Darlenia Johnson frequently hung out. Alongside this man, they questioned another man who someone allegedly saw in a car with Darlenia after she was reported missing. During questioning, police used sodium pentothal, a truth serum, on this man. This was the first time the department ever used this technique. However, he was cleared of suspicion. The task force produced the strongest suspect so far, a man named Robert Askins. He was a computer technician and former patient at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, who had served time for the 1938 death of a DC sex worker. He was freed 20 years later, in 1958, after his sentence was overturned due to some legal technicalities. A few years after the freeway murders, a DC police detective named Lloyd Davis interviewed Robert Askins about his involvement in other unrelated rapes, and he learned about his prison time. In March 1977, Detective Davis received a search warrant from a DC Superior Court judge. This allowed him to search Askins' row house. They found the appellate court's opinion from his conviction, which used the word tantamount. This is the same word used in the note that was found in Brenda Woodard's pocket. Police found this to be of significance because they considered it to be an odd word for someone to use. To them, it was one of those words that most people don't include in their everyday vocabulary. And in 2006, Detective Davis told the Washington Post that, quote, Askins is known to use the word when attempting to stress the importance of matters related to his work, end quote. In the search of Askins' home, police also found soiled women's scarves, photos of girls and young women, a knife used in another crime, and an essay from a girl. Another warrant was issued a month later, allowing police to search Askins' vehicle. In that search, they found two buttons and a gold earring under his back seat. Despite all of this, police still didn't have enough evidence to tie Robert Askins to the death of any of the six girls between that 17-month period. Remember those green synthetic fibers found on many of the girls? Well, those fibers did not match fibers found in the home or car of Askins. Not to mention, the hairs that were found on the bodies of the victims also came back negative for Robert Askins. It turns out that Askins was later convicted of kidnapping and raping two women in D.C. several years after the freeway murders. He received a life sentence for those crimes and died in prison on April 30, 2010, at the age of 91. A man by the name of James Trainum revisited the freeway phantom murders back in 2009. This D.C. detective believed that the police, quote, tried to squeeze him, meaning Robert Askins, into the box they created, and it just wasn't working, end quote. The name James Trainum may sound familiar because he also worked on the case of Jason Thomas Ellis, a case I covered in episode three. According to the Washington Post, 
Trainum's theory is that the killer lived in the same neighborhood as his first two victims because they were abducted within blocks of each other near Wheeler Road and Southern Avenue. He deduced that the killer then went outside the neighborhood because someone might have suspected him of untoward behavior. On the other hand, Detective Jenkins believes that the serial killer may have been in the military or may have had a transient lifestyle. She always wondered whether it was a returning Vietnam veteran who suffered from PTSD or someone who was angry with the police. However, both detectives believe that the killer was in his 20s or 30s and was black. I think they believe the killer is black because it would have been rare to see any other race in black neighborhoods where the victims lived. And if the killer was white, the killer definitely would have been noticed. However, I'm curious as to why Brenda Crockett told her family that she was taken by a white man and how police have considered this note in their profile of the killer. According to the Washington Post, an FBI crime analysis suggested that the killer had at least a high school education and average or above average intelligence and was employed. The killer knew how to start conversations with women, but not how to maintain healthy relationships. He either lived alone or with an older woman and knew the neighborhoods where he abducted and disposed of the girls. In 1979, Detective Jenkins stumbled across a file as thick as a phone book. This file contained information about the Green Vega case, in which two men had been convicted five years earlier of kidnapping and raping young women in the DC area. This was around the same time that the freeway murders took place. These two men, along with three others, drove around in a green Chevrolet Vega. I can't help but think about the green synthetic fibers that were found on five of the six girls' bodies. When I looked up the design of the green Chevrolet Vega, I noticed that some models contained green carpeting on the interior. Could this be where the green fibers originated from? What's even more interesting is that a tip came in that alleged that the Freeway Phantom was a member of the Green Vega gang. Law enforcement spent countless hours investigating this allegation. One investigator named Louis Richardson soon became certain that these men were responsible for the murders because they took police to the scene, explained how the girls were killed, and provided other details. However, a general consensus by other detectives who worked the case formed that these people couldn't be the killers because the information they provided only came from news reports that covered the cases. In addition, these men knew nothing about the note that was found in Brenda Woodard's pocket, and none of the hair samples of the men matched those found on the victims. In 1987, Detective Jenkins reopened the case while assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, she finally had resources to seriously investigate. She was no longer left to work the case whenever she had free time. The case was now her main priority. She got cooperation from former investigators who turned over their notebooks, and the FBI even opened its files. She also visited the crime scenes, interviewed witnesses, and talked to the victim's relatives to see if the real suspect may have been overlooked. When Detective Jenkins decided to look back into the case of Darlenia Johnson, she was met with some new information. Jenkins requested the missing person report for Darlenia from the police department's youth division. She was shocked to find out that the young officer who was bringing the case to her was Patricia Williams, Diane Williams's sister. During the reinvestigation of Darlenia Johnson's case, Jenkins discovered that Darlenia's mother got some odd phone calls during the time her daughter was missing. She also found out that Diane Williams's mother had also received a disturbing and creepy phone call. In the call, the person on the other end said, quote, I killed your daughter, end quote. 
police had determined that Darlenia was most likely with her boyfriend before she was killed. However, Jenkins learned that the boyfriend's mother refused to let police interview him. In 1990, Jenkins inspected the hairs, fibers, and handwritten note found in Brenda Woodard's pocket and wanted the forensic evidence tested. DNA testing, which didn't exist in the 1970s, was now available in the 90s. Unfortunately, law enforcement had done a poor job preserving all of it, so nothing could be done. Apparently, no one even knows where the evidence is now. Without access to the evidence, the chances of these cases being solved grow slimmer. According to Jenkins, the police department often misplaced files, regardless of race. She has said that back in the day, it wasn't unusual to find files strewn about carelessly. The inability to find the girl's killer has left the remaining family members of the victims heartbroken. Valerie Moore, Carol Spinks's older sister, who sent her to the store that fateful evening, still carries guilt. After the killing, Valerie would walk along Southern Avenue and Wheeler Road in Southeast D.C., the same path Carol took to the store, to see if someone would approach her. She told the Washington Post, quote, I was afraid, but I just wanted to know who would do this, end quote. Bertha Crockett still gets emotional when she remembers her sister Brenda, calling home asking if their mother saw her. After her sister's murder, she often asked herself, why didn't I go to the store with her? She believes if she had, things may have turned out differently. Growing up, Bertha wasn't allowed to have boyfriends, and her mother didn't let her or her two brothers leave the house much, other than to go to school. According to Bertha, quote, she kept a tight noose on us after that. I became rebellious, defiant, and impossible, end quote. Patricia Williams became less trusting of people after her sister Diane was murdered. She was 15 at the time of Diane's death. She later joined the D.C. police and managed the child abuse squad in the youth division. At 61, she retired and moved to Florida. She says her sister's death made her more cautious about everything. Though Detective Romaine Jenkins eventually retired in 1994, the girls are still with her and she declares that she will search for answers as long as her heart continues to beat, saying, quote, what happens when people like me and the families are gone? This will be forgotten, end quote. But I hope that people don't forget the brutal murders of Carol Spinks, Darlenia Denise Johnson, Brenda Faye Crockett, Nana Moshia Yates, Brenda Denise Woodard, and Diane Williams. The innocence of these girls were stolen, and they became the targets of a depraved and vile killer. But just because their stories have become lost among the many murders throughout the years, it's not too late to solve these cases. These stories are worth being told, and every single one of these girls deserve justice. This was the last episode of Season 1 of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. I'll be back next year with more cases in Season 2. While the podcast is on break, I'll be researching more cases that need to be told. And I'd appreciate it if everyone listening would share the podcast to bring attention to these cases. Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already, and catch up on any episodes you may have missed. Thanks for listening. See you next year. If you want to interact with the podcast on social media, or share with me some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. 
Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. And don't forget to follow the Lost Crimes Library so you won't miss any new episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.